Chapter Fifteen of *The Dust Flower* by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Fifteen. The interlacing of destinies is such that you will not be surprised to learn that the further careers of Letty Gravely, of Barbara Walbrook, of Rashley Allerton, now turned on Mademoiselle Odette Coucoul, whose name not one of the three was ever destined to hear. On his couch in the library, Allerton slept till after nine, waking in a confusion which did not preclude a sense of refreshment. At the same minute, Madame Simone was finishing her explanations to Mademoiselle Coucoul as to what was to be done to the seal-brown costume which Steptoe had added to Letty's wardrobe, in order to conceal the fact that it was a model of a season old, and not the new creation its purchasers supposed. Taking in her instructions with Gallic precision, Mademoiselle was already at work when Miss Tina Vansetti paused at her door. The door was that of a small French-panelled room, once the boudoir of the owner of the Flemish chateau, but set apart now by Madame Simone for jobs requiring deftness. Miss Vansetti, whose Neapolitan grandfather had begun his American career as a boot-black in Brooklyn, was of the Americanized type of her race. She could not, of course, eliminate her Latininity of eye and tress, nor her wild luxuriance of bust. But English was her mother tongue, and the chewing of gum her national pastime. She chewed it now, slowly, thoughtfully, as she stood looking in on Mademoiselle Odette, who was turning the skirt this way and that, searching out the almost invisible traces of use which were to be removed. "'Shall she give you that to do, has she? Some stunt, I'll say!' Gee, she's got some gore with her old Simone, putting that off on the public as something new. If I had a dollar for every time Mammy Gunn has walked in and out to show it to customers, I'd buy a set of silver fox. Mademoiselle's smile was radiant, not because she had radiance to shed, but because her lips and teeth framed themselves that way. She too was of her race, alert, vivacious, and as neat as a trivet, as became a former midinette of the Rue de la Paix and a daughter of Batignol. "'Madame, she think it all in de business,' she contented herself with saying. With her left hand, Miss Vansetti put soft touches to the big black coils of her back hair. "'See that kid that all these things is going to? Gee, but she's beginning to step out. I know her. Spotted her the minute she'd come in to try on. Me and she went to the same school, lived on the same street. Name of Letty Gravely.' Seeing that she was expected to make a response, Mademoiselle could think of nothing better than to repeat in her pretty staccato English, Name of Letty Grivelli. Stepfather's name was Judson Flack. Company promoter, he called himself. Mother croaked up three or four years ago, just before we moved to Harlem. Never saw no more of her till she walked in here with the old white slaver what's paying for the outfit. Gee, you needn't tell me. Suppose she'll hit the pace till some fella chucks her. Gee, I'm sorry. Awful sling chance a girl'll get when some guy with a wob blows along and wants her. The theme exhausted, Miss Fancetti asked suddenly, Why don't you never come to the lantern? In her broken English, Mademoiselle explained that she didn't know the American dances, but that a fella had promised to teach her the steps. She met him at the house of a cousin who was married to a waiter chez Bouquin. The beautiful fellow he was, and had invited her to a chop suey dinner that evening with the dance of the lantern to wind up with. Most very beautiful fellow, single, and a detective. 
"'Good for you,' Miss Vansetti commanded. "'If you don't dance, you might as well be dead, I'll say. "'Keeps you thin, too, and the music of the lantern is swell.' "'The incidence is so slight that to get its significance "'you must lick it up with the sound of the telephone, "'which, as a simultaneous happening, "'was waking Judson Flack from a first real sleep "'after an uncomfortable night.' Nothing but the fear, lest by ignoring the call, the great North Dakota oil company whose shares would soon be on the market would be definitely launched without his assistance, dragged him from his bed. Hello? A woman's voice inquired. Is this Hudson, 283J? Ye bet. Is Miss Gravely in? Just gone out. Only round the corner. Back in a few minutes. Say, sister, I'm my stepfather, and I'll take the message. Tell her to come right over to the Excelsior studio. "'Casting director's got a part for her. "'Real part. "'Small, but a stunner. "'Outcast girl. "'I suppose she's got some old dew to dress it in?' "'Sure thing.' "'Well, tell her to bring him along. "'And say, listen, I don't mind passing you the tip "'that the casting director has his eye on that girl "'for doing the pathetic stunt. "'So see she ain't late.' "'You betcha.' "'That an ambitious man, "'growing anxious about his future, "'was thus placed in a trying situation, "'will be seen at once.' The chance of a lifetime was there, and he was unable to seize it. Everyone knew that by these small condensations of nebular promise, stars were eventually evolved, and to have at its disposal the earnings of a star. It seemed providential, then, that on dropping into the basement eating-place at which he had begun to take his breakfasts, he should fall in with Gorry Larabin. They were not friends, or rather they were better than friends. They were enemies who found each other useful. Mutually antipathetic, they quarrelled, but could not afford to quarrel long. A few days or a few weeks having gone by, they met with a nod, as if no hot words had been passed. It was such an occasion now. Ten days earlier Judson had called Gorry to his teeth, "'No detective but a hired sneak!' Gorry had retorted that, hard sneak as he was, he would have Juxon Flack in the jug as a promoter of fate companies, before the year was out. One word had led to another, and only the intervention of friends to both parties had kept the high-spirited fellows from exchanging blows. But the moment had come round again when each had an axe to grind, so that as Judson hung up his hat near the table at which Gorry, having finished his breakfast, was smoking and picking his teeth, the nod of reconciliation was given and returned. "'Say, why don't you sit down here?' Politely, Corrie indicated the unoccupied side of his own table. It was a small table covered with a white oilcloth, and tolerably clean. "'Don't mind if I do,' was the other's return of courtesy, friendly relations being thus re-established. Having given his order to a stunted Hebrew maid of Polish culture, Judson Flack launched at once into the subject of Letty. He did this for a twofold reason— First, his grievance made the expression of itself imperative, and next, Gorry, being a hanger-on of that profession which lives by knowing what other people don't, might be in a position to throw light on Letty's disappearance. If he was, he gave no sign of it. As a matter of fact, he was not, but he meant to be. He remembered the girl, had admired her, had pointed her out to several of his friends that she had only to doll herself up in order to knock spots out of a lot of good-lookers of recognised supremacy. Odette Cucul's description of him as most ver beautiful fellow was not without some justification. 
regular, clean-cut features, long and thin, with a complement of a slight, well-knit figure, of which the only criticism one could make was that it looked slippery. Slipperiness was perhaps his ruling characteristic, a softness of movement suggesting a cat, and a habit of putting out and drawing back a long, supple, snake-like hand which made you think of a pickpocket. Eyes that looked at you steadily enough impressed you as untrustworthy, chiefly because of a dropping of the pupil of the left, through muscular inability. "'Awful sorry, Judson,' was his summing up of sympathy with his companion's narrative. "'Any dope I'll get, I'll pass along to you.' Between gentlemen, however, there are understandings which need not be put into words, the principle of nothing for nothing being one of them. The conversation had not progressed much further before Gorry felt at liberty to say, "'Now about this North Dakota oil, Judson, I'd like awful well to get in on the ground floor of that. I've got a little something to blow in, and there's a lot of suckers ready to snap up that stock before you print the certificates.' Diplomacy being necessary here, Judson practised it. Gorry might indeed be seeking a way of turning an honest penny, but then again he might mean to sell out the whole show. On the one hand you couldn't trust him, and on the other it wouldn't do to offend him, so long as there was a chance of his getting news of the girl. Judson could only temporise, pleading his lack of influence with the bunch who were getting up the company. At the same time he would do his utmost to work Gorry in, on the tacit understanding that nothing would be done for nothing. Allerton, too, had breakfasted late at the New Netherlands Club, and was now with Miss Barbara Walbrook, who received him in the same room and wearing the same hydrangea-coloured robe as on the previous morning. He called her up from the club, asking to be allowed to come once more at this unconventional hour in order to communicate good news. "'She's willing to do anything,' he stated at once, making the announcements with the glee of evident relief. "'In fact, it was by pure main force that I kept her from running away from the house this morning.' He was dashed that she did not take these tidings with his own buoyancy. "'What made you stop her?' she asked in some wonder. "'Sit down, Rash. Tell me the whole thing.' Though she took a chair, he was unable to do so. His excitement now was over the ease with which the difficulty was going to be met. He could only talk about it in a standing position, leaning on the mantelpiece, or stroking the head of the manship terracotta child, while she gazed up at him, nervously beating her left palm with the black and gold fringe of her girdle. I stopped her because, well, because it wouldn't have done. Why wouldn't it have done? I should think that it's just what would have done. Let her slip away penniless, and, and without friends. She'd be no more penniless and without friends than she was when, when you, she sought for the right word, when you picked her up. "'No, of course not. Only now the, the situation is different. "'I don't see that it is much. "'Besides, if you were to let her run away first, "'so that you could get whatever the law wants you to get, "'you could see that she wasn't penniless and without friends afterwards. "'Most likely that's what she was expecting.' "'His countenance fell. I've, "'I don't think so.' "'Oh, you wouldn't think so as long as she could bamboozle you. "'I was simply thinking of you getting what she probably wants to give you.' for a price. I don't think you do her justice, Bob. If you'd seen her. Very well, I shall see her. But seeing her won't make any difference in my opinion. She'll not strike you as anything wonderful, of course. 
"'But I know she's as straight as they make them. "'And so long as she is. "'Well, what, then? "'Why, then, it seems to me we must be straight on our side. "'We'll be straight enough if we pay her her price. "'There's more to it than that. "'Oh, there is. Then how much more? "'I don't know that I can explain it.' "'He lifted one of the Steagall candlesticks and put it back in its place. "'I simply feel that we can't that we can't let all the magnanimity be on her side. If she plays high, we've got to play higher. I see. So she's got you there, has she? I wish you wouldn't be disagreeable about it, Bob. My dear Rash, she expostulated, it isn't being disagreeable to have common sense. It's all the more necessary for me not to abnegate that, for the simple reason that you do. He hurled himself to the other end of the mantelpiece, "'picking up the second candlestick and putting it down with force. "'It's surely not abnegating common sense just to, to recognise honesty. "'Please don't fiddle with those candlesticks. "'They're the rarest American workmanship, "'and if you were to break one of them, Aunt Marian would kill me. "'I'll feel safer about it if you sit down.' "'All right, I'll sit down.' "'He drew to him a small, frail chair sitting astride on it. "'Only please don't fidget me.' "'Would you mind taking that, chair?' She pointed to something solid, a masculine by Fife. "'That little thing is one of Aunt Marian's pet pieces of old Dutch colonial. If anything were to happen to it—' "'But you were talking about recognising honesty,' she continued, as he moved obediently. "'That's exactly what I should like you to do, Rash dear, with your eyes open. If I'm not looking, anyone can pull the wool over them, whether it's this girl or someone else.' "'In other words, I'm a fool.' as you were good enough to say, "'Oh, do forget that. I couldn't help saying it, as I think you ought to admit. But don't keep bringing it up every time I do my best to meet you pleasantly. I'm not going to quarrel with you any more, Rash. I made a vow to that effect, and I'm going to keep it. But if I'm to keep it on my side, you mustn't badger me on yours. It doesn't do me any good, and it does yourself a lot of harm.' Having delivered this homily, she took a tone of brisk cheerfulness. "'Now, you said over the phone that you were coming to tell me good news.' "'Well, that was it.' "'What was it?' "'That she was ready to do anything, even to disappear.' "'And you wouldn't let her?' "'That I couldn't let her, without nothing to show for it.' "'But she will have something to show for it in the end. "'She knows that as well as I do. "'Do you suppose for a minute that she doesn't understand the kind of man she's dealing with?' "'You mean that—' "'Rash, dear, no girl who knows as much as this girl knows "'could help seeing at a glance that she's got a pigeon to pluck, "'as the French say, and of course she means to pluck it. "'You can't blame her for that, being what she is. "'But for heaven's sake let her pluck it in her own way. "'Don't be a simpleton. "'Angels shouldn't rush in where fools would fear to tread, "'and you are an angel, Rash, "'though I suppose I'm the only one in the world who sees it.' "'Thank you, Bob.' I know you feel kindly toward me, and that, as you say, you're the only one in the world who does. That's all right, I acknowledge it, and I'm grateful. What I don't like is to see you taking it for granted that this girl is merely playing a game. Rash, do you remember those two winters I worked in the Bleary Street settlement? And do you remember that the third winter I said that I'd rather enlist in the Navy than go back to it again? You all thought that I was cynical and hard-hearted. But I'll tell you now what the trouble was. I went down there thinking I could teach those girls, that I could do them good, and raise them up, 
and have them call me blessed and all that. Well, there wasn't one of them who hadn't forgotten more than I ever knew, who wasn't working me when I supposed she was hanging on my wisdom, who wasn't laughing at me behind my back, when I was under the delusion that she was following my good example. And if you've got one of them on your hands, she'll fool the eyes out of your head. You think so, he said dryly. Then I don't. In that case, there's no use discussing it any further. There may be after you've seen her. How can I see her? You can go to the house. And tell her I know everything. If you like. You could say I told you in confidence that you're an old friend of mine. And nothing else. Since you only want to size her up, I should think that would be enough. She nodded slowly. Yes, I think you're right. Better not give anything away we can keep to ourselves. Now tell me what happened this morning. You haven't done it yet. He told her everything, how he had been waked by hearing someone fumbling with the lock of the door, whether inside or outside the house he couldn't tell, how he had gone to the head of the stairs and switched on the lower hall light, how she had flung herself against the door as a little grey bird might dash itself against its cage in its passion to escape. She staged it well, didn't she? She must have brains. She has brains, all right, but I don't think... She knew, of course, that if she made enough noise, someone would come, and she'd get the credit for good intentions. I really don't think, Bob. Now, let me tell you, you'll see what she's like. I felt very much as you do. I was right on the jump, got all worked up. Would have gone clean off the hooks if... There followed the narrative of his loss of temper, of his wild talk, of her clever strategy in counting ten. Just like a cold douche it was and the faint turn he so often had after spells of emotion. To convince Miss Walbrook of the queer little thing's ingenuousness, he told her how she made him lie down on the library couch, covered him up, rubbed his brow with Florida water, and induced the best sleep he had had in months. She surprised him by springing to her feet, her arms outspread. "'You great big idiot! Really, there's no other name for you!' He gazed up at her in amazement. "'What's the matter now?' Flinging her hands about, she made inarticulate sounds of exasperation beyond words. "'That'll do,' she threw off, when he jumped to her side, to calm her by taking her in his arms. "'I'm not off the hooks. I don't know anyone to rub Florida water on my brow and hold my hand and cradle me to sleep.' "'She didn't,' he exclaimed with indignation. "'She never touched my hand. She just—' "'Oh, I know what she did, and of course I'm grateful.' "'I'm delighted that she was there to do it. Delighted! "'I quite see now that you couldn't let her go when you knew your fit was coming on. "'I've seen you pretty bad, but I've never seen you as bad as that. "'And I must say I never should have thought of counting ten as a cure for it.' "'Well, she did.' "'Quite so. "'And if I were you, I'd never go anywhere without her. "'I'd keep her on hand in case I took a turn.' "'He was looking more and more reproachful. "'I must say, Bob, I, I don't think you're very reasonable.' She pushed him from her with both hands against his shoulders. "'Go away, for heaven's sake! You'll drive me crazy! I'm not going to lose my temper with you. I'll never do it again. I've got you to bear with, and I'm going to bear with you. But go! No, go now! Don't stop to make explanations. You can do that later. I'll lay in a supply of Florida water and an Afghan.' He went, with that look on his face which a well-meaning dog will wear, when his good intentions are being misinterpreted. On his way to the office he kept saying to himself, "'Well, I don't know what to do. 
Whatever I say, she takes me up the wrong way. All I wanted was for her to understand that the little thing is a good little thing. End of chapter 15